We're planning an amazing agenda for APA 2020, the American Psychological Association's annual meeting, and we need your help. We're looking for engaging speakers to share their expertise with thousands of psychologists from around the world. Is your work innovative and influential? Can your ideas help others solve challenges and advance the discipline? Do you have experiences that will inspire others? If so, we invite you to submit a proposal. To learn more, please visit convention.apa.org proposals or click the link in our show notes. A fleeting change in someone's face or body language can signal a lot of different emotions. Why do people's faces change when they're angry or sad? In this episode, we speak with a psychologist and expert in facial expressions, gestures, and other nonverbal behavior about how not speaking can speak volumes. I'm Audrey Hamilton, and this is Speaking of Psychology. David Matsumoto is a professor of psychology and director of the Culture and Emotion Research Laboratory at San Francisco State University. An expert on facial expressions, nonverbal behavior, and deception, he is director of Humantel, a company that conducts research and training for organizations such as the Transportation Security Administration, the FBI, and the U.S. Marshals Service. Welcome, Dr. Matsumoto. Thank you for having me. We are probably all familiar with the universal facial expressions of our emotions, you know, anger, joy, sadness, you know, those are some of them. Can you give examples of some of the less obvious facial expressions? I think you call them micro-expressions, you know, where someone is maybe attempting to conceal his or her emotions. These are much harder to detect. Is that right? Micro-expressions are unconscious, extremely quick, sometimes full-face expressions of an emotion, and sometimes they're partial and very subtle expressions of emotion. But because they're extremely quick and because they're unconscious, Um, When they occur, they occur oftentimes less than half a second, sometimes as fast as one-tenth of a second Mm. or even one-fifteenth of a second. Most people don't even see them. uh, And some some people do see them, but they don't know what they're seeing. They see something that has changed on the face, but they don't know exactly what it was that that was changed. It's fleeting. It's like a fleeting. It's very fleeting. But if you take a freeze frame on it on a video, you'll see that a lot of times there's a big facial expression that is very clear that about what the person's mental state is. Hmm. It all sounds very interesting, but how is this useful in the real world? You work with numerous organizations, like I mentioned, the FBI, the TSA, to help train interrogators and business people in the skill of reading people. You know, tell us about your applied work and training programs. Well, learning to read micro-expressions and nonverbal behaviors in general can be very valuable for anyone whose job it is to, to understand other people's true feelings, their thoughts, their motivations, their personalities, or their intentions. So obviously there's an application for, for people who are doing interviews mm-hmm. or interrogations. That would be people in the criminal justice system, law enforcement, uh, and national security, intelligence, and those are the kinds of people that we primarily work with because 
their job is to try to find uh, whether, about whether a person is concealing facts or concealing knowledge or, or concealing something or has some information that, that would be useful for solving a crime or getting some other kinds of information. And so when one wants to have, one wants, when one wants to be able to do that, you, it's very useful to be able to read these microexpressions. But again, the application is, 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 is very clear for anybody whose job it is to be able to get that kind of additional insight, what I call data superiority for the individual who's observing others. So it could be for salespeople. Mm. It could be for the legal profession. It could be for healthcare professionals or you know, psychotherapists, uh, medical doctors, uh, anybody, salesperson, I think I mentioned salesperson, anybody whose job it is to gain some additional insight about the person that you're talking with so that you can leverage that information for a particular outcome. Mm -hmm. I imagine these skills are particularly important in intercultural exchanges. Are facial expressions and gestures different in other cultures? And can you give us some examples? Well, uh, facial expressions of emotion are universal in the sense that we everybody around the world, regardless of race, culture, nationality, sex, gender, et cetera, and whatever the demographic variable is, we all show the same facial muscle expressions on our faces when we have the same uh, emotions. Hmm. Now, of course, the question is, um, context will moderate all of that, and what kinds of things bring about different emotions in different cultures? So there are, of course, there are cultural differences and large individual differences in when people express emotions and how they express them when they feel their emotions. But if there's no reason to change anything when people are feeling ex- extremely strong emotions and they can express it freely, they will express those, those emotions on their faces in exactly the same ways. Gestures are very different. Uh, and there are very many different types of gestures. And so the, the two types of gestures that we generally work with are called speech illustrators and emblems. Speech illustrators are these gestures that accompany speech that when you see a person using their hands when they're talking to, to illustrate a point, they're like animation. They're, they're like how we use our voice. Um, they, they, you know, they're, they're, they're functionally universal in the sense that everybody around the world uses hand gestures as speech illustrators, but people around the world differ in the amount that they do them and in the form. So if you can picture people waving around, some people in different, some cultures wave around their hands in, 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 in a certain way. Some people point when they talk. Some people are doing various different types of things with their hands when they talk. So the form in which the illustrators occur are different, but the function is the same across different cultures. Emblems is another type of gesture. These are generally culturally specific. These are gestures that refer to specific words or phrases. So if you can imagine, uh, the listeners can imagine the thumbs up, mm-hmm. which has a meaning around the world, which, which is like okay or good. These things are culture specific. So every culture, just as every culture has a, a verbal vocabulary, different vo- verbal vocabulary, every culture creates a vocabulary of emblematic gestures that correspond to certain types of phrases that they think are important to have in a gesture. Mm-hmm. So those are, are, are very culture specific. Now, what's really interesting about that is that uh, our, some of our most recent research published a couple of years ago has shown that some gestures are beginning to be universally recognized around the world, like head nods for yes and head shakes for no. Well, of course, there's places around the world that still do them different ways, but they are re- increasingly being recognized universally around the world, probably because of a lot of shared mass media, mm-hmm. because of the internet or movies and things like that. So 
in summary, you know, with nonverbal behaviors, there's some aspects of it that are very universal and some aspects of, that, of, it, of them that are culture-specific. Hmm. Some of your research has involved the study of blind athletes. I thought this was interesting. Can you tell us how that research has furthered your understanding of human emotions? Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, I, you know, one, one, of the, one of the pervasive questions about facial expressions of emotion in the, in the past has been whether they're universal or not, and I think uh, we, you know, it's, it's, there's very conclusive evidence that, about the universality of facial expressions of emotion. Then the next question becomes, wh where do they come from? Because it could be that we are all born with some kind of innate skill that is an evolutionarily um, based kind of adaptation that we share with non-human primates and other animals. Or it could be that humans have just all around the world learn it regardless of where they are uh, from the time that they're infants. So it could be something that is learned or something that is biologically innate. Now, studying blind individuals and especially congenitally blind individuals is a particularly great thing to do to address this particular research question because when you study blind individuals and you study their expressions, you know that as long as they were congenitally blind, that they, that they had, there was no way that they could possibly learn to see those expressions and put them on their faces from birth because they've been blind from birth. Right. And so when you study a population like that, you can, it helps you address a certain research question. And so in the studies that we've done, we've actually studied the spontaneous facial expressions of blind individuals from around the world, uh, from many different cultures. And we showed that in the same emo emotionally evocative situations that blind individuals uh, produce on their faces exactly the same facial muscle configurations for the same emotions as sighted individuals do. And again, because these are individuals who, have, who are blind from birth, there's no way that they could have possibly learned to do that mm -hmm. by seeing others do it. And so it, 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 it leads me to, to think, and many others, to, to believe that the ability to have facial expressions of emotion is something that we are biolo is biologically innate and that we're all born with. Mm. I've done judo for 48 years of my life here, and I've been fortunate enough to, to be part of, the, part of our Olympic movement in judo. I was the Olympic coach for the, for the 1996 and 2000 Olympic Games for the United States. We studied the expressions of the athletes in the, sighted, in the, in the regular Olympic Games, so these are all sighted individuals, and we studied their expressions right at the moment they won or lost the medal match. Okay. And we're, 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 we're taking photographs, these are high-speed photo, photo, uh, photographs, eight, eight shots per second with a, with a very expensive camera. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so we can track the expressions, you know, in, in minute second-by-second second or fractions of a second resolution right at the time of winning or losing the match. And we also could see their, the expressions of the same athletes on the podium 30 minutes later in a social context. Mm. So we could do that comparison. Two weeks after that the Olympic Games, every Olympics, what happens in every Olympics is the Paralympics rolls in into town using the, exactly the same venue. Um, so th my guy was, was there still. And uh, every sport has a different disability. For judo, for judo it's blindness. Hmm. And so, so all the judo athletes in the judo Paralympic Games are all blind. Half of them, or some degree of them, are, are congenitally blind and some are acquired blindness through some kind of... Um, um, uh, disease or accident. Mm -hmm. There are no differences between them, by the way. But anyway, we were able to take the same, do the same kind of study with the Paralympic 
uh, judo blind athletes in the Paralympic Games. When you compare the expressions of the, the blind athletes in the Paralympic Games to the sighted athletes in the, in the regular Olympic Games, what you find is that for the winners, they all do the same. Winners and losers, they all do the same thing. You, and we measure the exact facial muscle movements that are occurring right at the time of winning or losing that match. Uh, so the, the, I think the correspondence, uh, the correlation between the, in the correspondence between the facial muscle movements was something like 0.9, or some incredibly high number that you never see in our in research yeah. nowadays. So that that the correspondence is amazingly high uh, between the blind and the sighted athletes. What's really interesting about sighted uh, blind athletes is this: or sighted, you know, if I, if if we ask our listeners to show on their faces. What do you do? What do you show? What do you think you do on your face when you express anger? Everybody can give you something. Mm-hmm. And it'll, it'll be pretty much accurate. And the reason is because all of us have seen it. We've seen it in ourselves if we've seen ourselves angry in a mirror. Or we see it in others when they're angry. So we see it. We know what it looks like. We've seen ourselves do it. We, we know what it feels like. A blind athlete has never seen it. So if you ask a blind person hey, show me what you look like when you're angry or when you're sad or something else. You'll get something that's close, but you don't get the exact facial muscle movements that occur when, it, when, when those emotions occur spontaneously. How, however, when, you, when it occurs spontaneously, the, the exact facial muscle movements are, are, are exactly the same. Mm. So blind individuals produce them spontaneously, but don't produce exactly the same thing when you ask them to pose it, whereas sighted people do. Interesting. And so this is, a, to me, another example of how, how there's differences between mm-hmm. the blind and the sighted and, and why they are, because this is a biologically innate thing. They can do it when, when it's spontaneous. Hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Matsumoto, for joining us today. It's been very interesting. My pleasure. For more information on Dr. Matsumoto's work and to hear more episodes, please go to our website at speakingofpsychology.org. With the American Psychological Association's Speaking of Psychology, I'm Audrey Hamilton.